Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Georgia. With me is Greg Velasquez in Iowa. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. Thanks for downloading this episode of Scuffed. Greg is busy grouting his bathroom or something, but not to worry, we have a special guest today, a longtime friend of the pod and our most frequent guest over the years, I think by a wide margin, Matt Hartman. He watches a lot of soccer and his passion for the national team is pure and he and I often disagree about stuff, so this should be fun. Matt, how are you? I'm doing great, Bells. I love the idea of Greg just covered in grout. Uh, messaging you that like bells I, I just can't i just can't make it this week so you need to call apartment for this one yeah. i'm glad to be here yeah well thank you very much so we're gonna this is gonna be an episode of uh questions from patrons on patreon we got a lot i solicited some a couple days ago got a lot and we'll try to plow through as many as possible a lot of good questions too um which is always the case so thank you to the patrons for the questions I've broken them into five categories and I'll list them now so that you have something to look forward to. The categories are the number nine, Burhalter's competence, Brendan Aronson, national team logistics, and miscellaneous. So let's go. Let's start with the number nine category. The first question comes from Jason Beers and it's got a long setup, but the setup is worthwhile. So bear with me for a second. Burhalter started implementing the drop-in number nine in January 2020. At the time, our striker pool was Altidore, Sargent, and Zardes. Altidore and Sargent both liked to drop in to help with the buildup, and Jesus Ferreira had just joined the pool and seemed on the pace to join them. Also, after Pulisic, the top wingers were Weah and Morris, two players who had spent a lot of time as forwards and were comfortable stretching defenses when the striker dropped in. Given all of that, the drop-in striker seemed the perfect shape for the skill set of the pool. 15 months later, Sargent and Ferreira have seen only modest growth. Altidore seems to be receding from the player pool and Morris' national team future is in some jeopardy, I I guess. On the flip side, Daryl DK is improving at a meteoric pace and Sibachu has joined the pool of our top wingers. Weah is the only one with a knack for line stretching far post runs while Pulisic, Reyna, and Aronson are basically 10s who create chances for others. So... That's the setup. Here's a question from Jason. Given these changes to the attacking depth chart over the last 16 months, does a 4-3-2-1 better fit the player pool than a 4-3-3? And I think the what he means is does does a, a true line leading number nine who gets in behind and and uh, you know doesn't drop in so much to help create. Does that make more sense now, Matt? Uh, I didn't catch that question, Bells. Can you repeat it real quick? <laughs> 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 no, it's a it's a hard question to answer. Um, I'd start by saying, like, when it comes to the the three four two one versus four three three, um, th- there's a little bit too much emphasis put on formation when we think about how you know the team approaches games. There are a ton of teams that play out of a four three three shape that have really different playing styles. Yeah. Um, Greg has been lining the national team up in like a two three four one. <laughs> on his depth charts uh, on Twitter for like the last six months. because Greg, Greg Velasquez, to be clear. Yes, right, yeah. um, because that's like more reflective of the actual team shape and possession than a 4-3-3. But I don't think a 4-3-3 is an incorrect way to describe the team shape either. It's just kind of how you think about it. Um, so I think what Jason is really asking here is, does it make more sense for us to line up in a shape that doesn't 
necessarily rely on the nine to help us create space um, and chances in the attacking third. And I think that's totally a fair point given the the state of the nine pool. Um, talking about a four three two one specifically, I think it'd be a lot to ask our players to perfect a five man midfield. You know, I think about like that the four three two one in like the mid two thousands Milan era, like mm-hmm. a lot of intricate passing and s- stuff like that. Um, with so little time ahead of World Cup qualifying to to go that route would um, is a little misguided, I think. The reason why so many international teams play out of a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, if you consider that a different thing, is um, because those concepts are basically universal. Um, almost everybody, almost every soccer player will have been used to playing out of that shape um, at some point uh, at, at club level. So I, I think if you're re- really worried about uh, Sargent or Zardes's ability to produce uh, a four-three-three shape is prob- probably still makes the most sense, just with an increased emphasis on playing the ball over the top of the defense to the head of a Daryl DK, for example, to stretch the opposition back line. Yeah, yeah. I think I guess I take the question as mostly uh, what kind of striker does the national team need? And we have, like he points out, like Jason points out, we have been operating under the assumption that the the striker that we need is the one who drop, can, can drop deep and combine neatly, you know, in the middle of the field and the, at the, you know, in zone 14 and even further back. And I, I do think he makes a good point that that may not be what we need from a nine right now, given the, pieces around our nine which are much more you know settled in the lineup like reina and reina and pulisic for instance and um right yeah i i hadn't really thought of it that way and i'm i'm glad to be thinking of it that way now now so thank you jason um i think yeah i think dk i think dk in particular uh you know if he continues to wildly outperform his xg and and look look good and gets the move we all want him to get this summer to a premier league club or maybe barnsley goes up um you know if things keep going well with dk that he it's a i think it's a it make it would make a lot of sense to to start him and not really worry about that that dropping in uh quality i think he can do it a little bit anyway but if you're worried that that's the that's gonna be a problem for dk maybe don't worry about it and just let you know reyna and pulisic pick the ball up and play it to DK, who is just on the shoulder of the center back, dragging the center backs around, getting in behind and uh, attacking the box rather than dropping in to help in the buildup. I like that. I think it makes sense. Right. D- DK kind of offers you, like, he, he does everything at, like, a pretty good level. So he kind of offers you that ability to, like, play a number the number nine however you'd like him to play it right like if if you're if you are leaving the system exactly as it is and playing into his feet that's something that he's shown in mls that he's capable of maybe he doesn't do it to the same level that a Josh sergeant does but with him on the field you could also you know play over the top and he does that at a really high level um he could you know uh, make runs from the nine that um i sergeant hasn't um doesn't do consistently let's say Um, but I mean, and we'll talk about it a little later, but we just don't know if that's something that Berhalter is really interested in. Is that like, if this doesn't work, do this, you know, like we're, we're mostly a plan a team. Um, 
so I think that we're probably going to stick with the current system um, at least through the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. G- good question, Jason. That's why I let off with it. Um, question from Sergio Morales. It seems like you guys, along with the majority of the fan base, have pinned Wea to one of the winger roles, and he's no longer mentioned as an option at the nine. Why is that? To me, he's clearly a better player than Sargent, DK, or Zardis, and his combination play and off-ball movement are perfect for our attacking setup. To me, he would be the nine in a must-win game tomorrow, and I find it bizarre most lineups have him out of the starting 11. Man. Yeah. I, I think it's hard to hand away the nine shirt when he, you know, he's been mostly playing as a wide forward uh, for years now. Um, I, I, but I, I totally agree that I, I do think that Waya l- would fit that role well. Um, but I'm not sure that Waya is like double the player Sergeant or DK is. Um, and that I think that that like the choice between the three of them specifically is much closer than uh, most of the people who think Waya should be the starting nine uh, did. But again, like I, I do love the ability that Waya has shown as a lone nine in the past, mm-hmm. either with the the national the youth national teams or in his Celtic days, where I, I thought a lot of the time watching him at Celtic that if his teammates had were able to pick their head up, uh, you know, a little bit faster or had been a little better that he was really making some off ball runs that um, were stellar. Yeah. And something you love to see from a nine. That's his, you know, that's his strongest part of his game is his, is his intelligence off the ball. And, um, and I think in, in a way it's kind of the same question that, that Jason asked, you know, I mean, way is not a, as big and physical as DK, but he is, if he were to play the nine and do it like he did at Celtic, he would be a, a more more of a line leading, uh, you know, true box attacking number nine. Rather, I mean, he can do the drop in and and help create stuff, but like he would he would be stretching that line, um, and I think that could work. So I don't know, Sergio. I apologize. I don't know why I have uh, <laughs> been so uh, so so certain that way I would be on the wing. I'm open to it. I'm open to him at the nine. I don't know if Berhalter is though. Right. I mean, the strongest, the strongest argument for way at the nine, I think is that the competition on the right wing has gotten so much better than it was, you know, like a year ago with Reina's emergence and Aronson. So if you're trying to just get like, you know, players you can count on, on the field, um, having way in the game makes at striker makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, well, sticking with the the number nine category, a question from Eric Malazzo. With Josie being left off the Nations League provisional roster, have we seen the last of him with the national team? Um, hmm. I, I wouldn't rule out uh, spot appearances in things like friendlies or, or January camps going forward, but uh, at this point, using a tournament roster spot on Josie feels like borderline irresponsible because <laughs> yeah. you just can't just can't count on him to stay healthy. Um, so yeah, I, I would say I would set the under over on um, Josie appearances going forward for the national team at like 2.5. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds fair. I, I guess my only reaction is yeah, I never say never. Cause like, like you said, there could be spot appearances in uh, friendlies or, or maybe even in a world cup qualifying window. You know, I don't, you can bring as many people as you want on one of those windows. Right. And, uh, 
we may we may need his services in in certain situations but he does seem to be phasing out of the pool question from richard glass so what are the chances that josh Sargent is the next wes mckinney meaning he is in a tough situation at the club level but with a change of scenery to a club where there is a decent midfield and some actual service he will produce at a much higher level what are the chances of that um i think a a change in scenery is probably for the best at this point and uh I think that Sargent would score a lot of goals in a league like MLS, but moving to a higher level gets tricky because uh, how I view the situation, I I don't think Sargent has the killer instinct to start games at clubs that are significantly better than Werder Bremen, at least in Germany. Like, Is a mid-table club like uh, Union Berlin or Stuttgart going to unlock Sargent's talent uh, all of a sudden? And then uh, he's going to, with like, 1.5 1.5 more chances per 90 um, become a, a player that's significantly player than the a significantly better player than who he is now. I'm not sure. I, I, for me, I think the hope with the transfer is that Sargent finds a coaching staff or situation that motivates him and to to get better. And I think that's more likely to help his development than like moderately improved midfield service. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a joke on here that you know, Sergeant is always turning the corner every weekend (laughs) and, and it just hasn't quite come together. And I don't know, like you said, he's not going to, he's not going to start for Dortmund or any, you know, any of the clubs in the top five, top six, seven in the Bundesliga, maybe six, seven, I don't know. And, and like you said, he's going to get one and a half more chances per 90 at union Berlin, maybe than he does at Werder Bremen. And I would say in a lot of ways, Werder Bremen has been a good situation for him, at least on paper. You know, he got to train with Claudio Pizarro, like a a legendary poacher uh, who was basically like a player coach there for a little while. And, um, you know, Florian Kofeld puts a lot of faith in him, gives him a lot of minutes. I know they don't create a lot of chances for him, but boy, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I hope that Sargent will look more dangerous if Werder Bremen can raise its level next season and, or if he does end up playing for a better team, which does not seem that likely, but um, I'm not confident about it. So I guess that's right. where I stand. And, and then there's a chance that Werder Bremen actually doesn't raise its level and actually declines and, and goes to the two Bundesliga next season, second Bundesliga. Sorry. Yeah. And I think we have to also appreciate just how, rare the Weston McKinney to Juve thing is likely to be um, that situation. Like I can't really think of another, another case in for world football, though I'm sure that there are some where a player moved from like a relegation threatened team to a team like Juve and just immediately looked like double the player than he was, that he was before. Um, yeah. So yeah, like expect, uh, you know, like it's the, uh, what do you call it that breaks the rule there? I think, um, yeah. and we shouldn't be. What's the word I'm looking for, Bills? <laughs> the exception that exception. proves the rule. <laughs> that proves the rule, right? Um, I don't think we should be expecting like a, a Weston McKinney level rise um, every season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I do. I do hope. You know, I have some friends who are big, big soccer fans, but not uh, U.S. men's national team nerds, and I. You know, I, I get beers with them every now and then, and we were talking about it, Josh Sargent, the other day, and they're all like, nah, 
he's not it. <laughs> you know, they're not, you know, they haven't been following his career with bated breath since he was 17, the way yeah. I have. And, um, and I, hey, I just I, thought that was instructive that like, a, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I totally get it. You know, like I watch Surgeon a lot of the time and I think the same thing. So, yeah. But I do think he will, what I said to those friends and what I'll say now is I do think he'll probably score a lot of goals for the national team over the next 18 months. He should get a lot of chances. And if he doesn't, um, then, you know, I guess it's DK's job or, you know, somebody else. Anyway, enough about that. Let's move on to the second category, Burhalter. Greg Burhalter. Question from Drew Seitz. Do you guys think Burhalter has the tactical chops and flexibility to change his lineup and strategy based on the opponent? For example, maybe a DK type striker who can run off the shoulder of the center back instead of the number nine playmaker. Back to that same idea. Or a lot of people are thinking about this. Or more traditional wingers instead of our channel runners. Or are we destined to be a one trick pony? Um, you want to take this one first, Bells? Sure. Yeah. I I do I do worry about this. Burhalter's tactical resume in 2019 was pretty bad. Uh, things have gotten better but he has a player pool that is on paper the strongest in CONCACAF by a wide margin. I mean, I'm not saying that we're better than Mexico as a national team right now. I'm just saying on paper, the player pool for the U.S. is at better clubs. Mexico doesn't have regular starters at Juventus and Barcelona and Chelsea and RB Leipzig. Our our national team should look good, and it kind of did in the last window. But we'll learn a lot about Berhalter in the next few months. And, um, you know, I think that Nations League final, assuming we get there, will be a bellwether game. I suspect Berhalter sees it that way, way too and is really um, keen on on getting it right. But when you look back at 2019, it took us getting our butts handed to us in in Toronto in that Nations League group game uh, for him to sort of sort it out and and go like go away from the 4-4-2 low block and start applying more pressure and trying to create more transition attacking moments. And it took a long time. It took a long time to, to sort that out for him. So I hope, I hope the learning curve is faster going forward. Right. Um, you know, like Pep Guardiola is sort of famous for playing without a, a plan B and, uh, which has, um, not worked out too well for them in a couple of champions League league games in the past. And, uh, but, uh, we all know Pep's Man City teams are like clearly the inspiration behind Berhalter's tactical setup. Um, and I do get the argument that like not training a plan B does strengthen plan A. You know, like if you're just spending time drilling down this system um, that, you know, like plan B isn't necessary if you're if you're if plan A is so good. But uh, yeah. I think I'm with you and Drew here that the emergence of DK specifically makes for like a usually intriguing second option uh, as opposed to, you know, playing directly into a striker's feet. Um, And, you know, with the way that our nine pool and winger pool is shaping out, um, I would love to see a a second look uh, for the national team. Um, And yeah, like I think that in the past, like in MLS, uh, Berhalter has shown the ability to make tactical adjustments. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't think it's something where it's like we have to be worried that like, oh, my God, this guy just he he doesn't have any idea how to play soccer besides this one way. Um, right, right. It's just going to come down to if if um, he thinks that it's worth training. And and that's a good uh, it's it's something to worry about, especially with like 
the limited amount of times that he has with these players. Like, do you really want to to have, you know, to tr- to train so many different looks? You know, it's an mm-hmm. open yeah. question. I, I'm kind of of two minds about it, and it all comes back to that to any time we play against Mexico. But um, I think I've said this on the podcast before: the idea of you know playing DK as like a Barnsley type target man against Mexico and just lumping the ball up to him and having Pulisic and Wea or Pulisic and Reina, you know, however you want to do it, running off of DK, I think is an intriguing idea. You know, that, that I think that would put Mexico under a lot of pressure. I don't think their center backs would be able to handle it. And if, you know, Pulisic and Pulisic is the most dangerous attacking player right now in CONCACAF. So you get him in space behind a, the Mexican midfield like that I would be scared of that if I was Mexico but um on the other hand Berhalter has this idea he wants to change the way American America plays soccer American men play soccer that is and I think there's there's got to be for him some level of like I am not going to abandon this project you know the whole idea is to be able to shred Mexico's press that's what we want to get to and if we just throw DK out there in the middle of the field and, and lump it up to him, we're abandoning that and it's not going to be, you know, we're not going to do the things we need to do as a program. I kind of see, I see both ways, you know? Um, so I, I, I'll be very interested in that game as will all of us, of course. Should we move to the next question? Yeah, let's do it. Um, from question from Scott Jorick, our, uh, former fact checker he's been he's been off the job for a while <laughs> I, I still have concerns about Berhalter making personal and or tactical adjustments when things just aren't working as well as set up for a game where we are overmatched there is a small sample size of matches where he could have done this and it seems that it just wasn't a priority then I need to see this otherwise I have little confidence we can match up with quality nations in a world cup I hope we get to see some semblance of this data point during the nations league and gold cup thoughts I wanted to read. Um, yeah. I wanted to read the question. I wanted to read the question from <laughs> Scott, but I think we basically answered it in the previous question, right? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I agree with him. I hope we see that during the Nations League and Gold Cup as well. Yeah. Question from Chris Jackson. One of the issues I remember the U.S. having before Berhalter sort of used 2020 and the first half of 2021 to overhaul both the way the team plays and the makeup of the roster was how much they struggled to generate anything in transition. This seemed to be both tactical, that uh, 4-4-2 mid-block that we deployed, and uh, and personnel. personnel. The team was older and just generally less explosive. Are there specific tactical advantages the current setup has to better use transition as an offense? And who are the players you most like to see in those defense-to-offense moments? Matt. Yeah, I mean, I think most of this is personnel-based, right? Like, there isn't a game plan or formation in which a midfield of Will Trapp, Michael Bradley, and Christian Roldan are creating 15 transition opportunities a game. Um, They just don't have that ability to high press and create space for themselves um, once they win the ball, if they win the ball. Well, uh, 2009, uh, 2019, Christian Roldan at least. Have you been watching Roldan recently? I watched like, I watched the most recent game. He looked really good. He looked like somebody who could create transition moments. But I agree that 2019 rolled on was I don't know seemed a little sleepier or something. Yeah, it's it's a weird like mid career um, 
renaissance at least it's looking that way um but yeah like if, if you don't have the the traits in your pool to reliably hurt uh teams in transition it doesn't really make sense to press high and i think that's where the the burr halter 442 mid block mostly mostly came from um and the recruitment of Musa and a healthy Tyler Adams really changed the way that you can approach games and um, credit to Burhalter for seeing that and uh, implementing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think uh, I agree with a lot of that. And I, and I think we got a buzzsaw midfield now, thanks to Musa, um, the addition of Musa with Adams and McKinney. We've never seen the three of them play together, but one can only imagine. Uh, and I think this is this has been a big tactical victory for Berhalter, pinching the wingers in and freeing up the eights to patrol and destroy and create those transition moments. I think McKenney is, you know, he's like tailor made for this. He's really I I've thought this since he was uh, you know just breaking in at Schalke. He is so good in those in those transition moments at like making a quick decision and hitting a pass that yeah that uh you know, put somebody in on goal or, or down the wing or something. He's very good at that. And I imagine, and Musa, you know, Musa is just so good in the cage match. So is Tyler Adams. I think we're going to get a lot of chances off of that, uh, over the next 18 months. Next category is Brendan Aronson, the RB Salzburg winger, winger slash eight question from Ian Fuchs. I, re- I got to be really careful how I pronounce that name. <laughs> I, I really am curious your thoughts on Aronson's rise and now potentially rumored move to Leipzig and how he fits into our tucked-in winger dueling eights personnel situation. He's not a guy you can leave off the final roster, but is he our starting right wing? Matt. Um, I mean, he's not the starting right, right winger uh, for me. It, it's interesting to see people talk about Aronson's rise because um, – he's playing better than he played in MLS against worse competition than he faced in MLS. It's like kind of what you were, I, I expected mm-hmm. going in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I did see the highlights of his most recent game and he does look like he's playing with a confidence that he didn't have in MLS, which is also something that, you know, just like playing in a worse league gets you playing for that team specifically where you're basically like the globe trotters um, <laughs> will afford you. Um, so, of, of course, you can only play the team in front of you, and like Aronson is a great fit for the winger roles of, in the national team setup, but I still have him as a bench option on my depth chart for now. I have him behind Pulisic on the left and uh, Weya and Reyna fighting it out for the right wing spot. Yeah, I do too. And I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think the reason Aronson, people talk about Aronson's rise is how good he looked for the national team in the last window, you know? Um, yeah, totally fair. And I mean, he has. He scored. He scored a lot more in Austria than at a much higher rate in Austria than he than he did in MLS. So I guess that's probably part of it too. But like you said, that's a that is at least partly a function of a, a lower level league. Yeah, for me, he's a tucked in winger, and he's on the left backing up Pulisic. I'm. Well, here's another question about Aronson from Robbie April: Is Aronson's ceiling the highest of any player in the pool right now, aside from Pulisic? He's just so impressive at the club level and every time he's played for the national team. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, <laughs> I'm not ready to go that far. I think, uh, yeah. Well, I'll let you answer first. Go ahead. Yeah, 
I, I'm with you. Um, it's it's weird because we disagree about like so many players, and we 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 have uh, questions about Brendan Aronson, who are like we're kind of um, in the same place on. Um, but yeah, I I think I'd probably list like like a good amount of players ahead of Aronson. Uh, if we're talking about just like pure ceiling, if I'm being honest, um, yeah, I, I kind of think of Aronson as more of a high floor player. Uh, you know, he's going to do a lot of running and make good decisions, uh, not too dissimilar from how I view Tyler Adams coming out of MLS. Um, but I'm, I'm not convinced that he has like the 1v1 ability or comfort in, sp- in tight space to become one of the world's best uh, attackers. And I do, I do think we have a few players with truly like world-class potential and i don't know musa reina richards che just to name a few yeah 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 i i think we we need to see a lot more from him before we talk about him having the highest ceiling outside of pulisic is i don't think his ceiling is juventus or barcelona i, I don't think right he's and, get and that that's that's basically like if you're talking about being one of the u.s's like highest uh Ceiling players like that's the level you're talking about now, right? You're talking about Juve Barcelona. Yeah, let's see how Aronson does in a top five league for a season. So maybe, so hopefully he does get uh, a move to Leipzig just for the you know just for the scientific method to bear itself out. He'll be a great backup for Caden Clark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Clark has a higher ceiling than Aronson, but I to be um, you know. To be fair, I have to admit I have underrated Aronson pretty much all along. I didn't particularly, I wasn't particularly interested in his game in Philadelphia, and um, I thought he would. There was a lot of hype, but then he got sold for like six million dollars, or was it six million? Or was it eight million? Can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. But a again, high like, fee in in MLS, like when when the games are more even, he saw less of the ball and. Um, he had that annoying habit of shooting directly at the goalkeeper every time. And um, every time he, he got a shot and uh, in Leipzig, in uh, Salzburg where like he's seeing much more of the ball and his team is always like, you know, in the attacking third. Um, of course he's going to, to, to look better at those things. Like I'm, I'm still, and you know, like the, the national team appearances are a completely fair point. Um, I would argue that those weren't necessarily like, 50 50 outcome expected outcome games either but that's true um yeah like I, i'm excited to see aronson play in a difficult environment right like i hope that that comes that that's why more than anything you know you hope for the leipzig um for the leipzig move yeah well even if and and even if he it turns out he can't be a difference maker in a you know, in a high level sort of evenly contested matchup, even if he can't do that, there's still value in having him, him come off the bench for the national team, because we are going to be dominating a lot of games. We're going to have a lot of the ball and, um, you know, absolutely having him come on and be able to hit, uh, like a beautiful pass to set somebody, put somebody in on goal. That's going to be nice. And I, I do, I think that that will be a valuable thing. Right. And I, I like when you talk about ceiling, like ceiling isn't everything, right? Like having having like five players with a high floor is better for your national team than having like 10 players with a high ceiling, because like how many players hit their ceiling, at least that like what we think about them, like just go back two years ago and think about 
some of the players that were, we were talking about on this podcast, you know, like yeah, how I, many of those guys are where we thought about they it. would be. I, <laughs> I deny it all. I never, never said any of that. <laughs> I, um, yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the next category. Logistics. There's quite a few questions about this and, um, I don't always have good answers to them, but, uh, here we go. This is from Robert Brownlee, the original, the OG patron on Patreon. Shout out to you, Mr. Brownlee. How do you think our CONCACAF opposition will approach playing us during these three-game windows? It would make sense to me that if you're Honduras and you have three games in a window against Canada, Jamaica, and the U.S., you are much more likely to try and field your A-team against Canada and Jamaica to maximize your points, basically conceding that you're going to lose to the U.S., do you agree with this? And if so, how do you feel this will affect the way we use our rotation of players? You want to take this one, Bells? Sure. I don't have a great answer to it, I, uh, but here we go. I think it might play out like this at least some of the time. Therefore, we are guaranteed to qualify for the World Cup. Nice. Now, I, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how everybody handles these windows, including us, because it is kind of a new era. If Honduras rolls over against us because they want to maximize points, I'd hope we are able to rotate or use subs in a way that prepares us best for the games that are going to be more uh, tough, toughly contested. I just, I just don't have a great answer, but I do think it's something we should be watching for. Right, I'm in, I'm in the same place as you. You know, it, it's certainly something I'm hoping for that all of these teams decide to rotate against us, but um, <laughs> I think it probably won't be as simple as like. Panama gets the A team, USA gets the B team. There's probably just going to be players mixed mixed in all over these teams where it's like everybody's getting sort of an A minus B plus yeah. opponent. That's right. Cuz I I think yeah, there's so there's going to be injuries, there's different ways to skin the cat for us in every window and it's got to be the same for Honduras. Uh question from Zach Beery. What three cities do you want the U.S. men's national team to play in during the 2026 World Cup to get the best home field advantage? Zach, come on. We got a whole other World Cup coming up before that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that might be a little bit of a homer pick, but I say we just play every game in Yankee Stadium. Trash. How's that sound? Trash. Uh, no, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean... I'd be okay with sure. MetLife for one of them. Or what, what no. is the best stadium in the, in the New York metropolitan area? I mean, if you're talking about like World Cup level size stadium, it's going to have to be MetLife, even though I'm not a huge fan of that stadium. It's kind of like cavernous, you know, in the way that those like 70,000 seater stadiums tend to be. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure home field advantage is going to be a huge problem in the in the 2026 World Cup as like at least not as big a problem as it has been historically in World Cup qualifiers or in the Gold Cup, because the general public of the U.S. is much more aware and the crowds should be pretty diverse in terms of uh, su the support for teams. Yeah. So I'll go with like, I don't know, like uh, Orlando, Boston, Nashville. The only city that I'd really want to avoid is Denver just because alt altitude and tournaments don't go hand in hand that well. Yeah. Classic that you would that you would stick almost entirely to the eastern time zone. Um, but just just so you know, I don't consider Nashville in the Eastern Time Zone. It's not. I know it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's very close to being in the Eastern Time Zone. Um, yeah, I think we need to be more geographically egalitarian than that. So make it one of the East Coast cities. 
to satisfy all the provincial people who live on the East Coast, and then um, Soldier Field in Chicago, and then the Rose Bowl. When it comes to qualifiers against Costa Rica or Mexico, uh, yeah. I'm I'm one of those that says let's do everything we can to maximize our advantage. So that means Columbus, Kansas City, maybe even Minnesota, although. Allianz Field is not as loud as I'd like it to be. Something about the acoustics of that stadium are it's it's a little bit like a library. So I know it's been it's been floated as a quali- a, a qualifier location. That's why I mention it. Anything else? Uh no, I'm still I'm still put throw them on the east coast. People on the west coast can travel to it'll be, it'll be a nice vacation <laughs> experience for them. Yeah. People in California just can't wait to go to Connecticut. Um, <laughs> question from Joe Minnick. With these three game windows for World Cup qualifying, will clubs be able to put limits on player usage and thus force increased rotation for the U.S.? If so, would Burhalter try to mimic this heavy rotation strategy this summer in preparation for the fall? I'll take this one. Uh, no, clubs can't do that. I think, you know, if... These are these are FIFA international windows, and the national teams get the players that they want for those windows, and they can do with them as they please during the window, um, you know, within the boundaries of the law. But also uh, to the second part of the question, yes, it does appear Berhalter is trying to mimic this heavy rotation strategy in the Nations League window. Uh, it's uh, Greg Velasquez keeps using the word cadence to describe it like they're trying to they're trying to replicate or trying to mimic the cadence of of those windows by having a game against switzerland and then you know the two nations league games we have the the court the semifinal and then either the third place game or the or the final and then there's going to be another game even another game after that the costa rica friendly all within 10 days so we're going to practice yep i agree with all of that um yeah like you know peace club teams can't stop any of this from happening. If, if Bayern weren't able to keep Lewandowski from going to Poland and thusly destroying their champions league run, I don't think um, Barnsley is going to be able to stop DK from playing for the U S or anything like that. As it should be, as it should be. Yep. Question from Thomas Phillips with the USA up to 20 in the FIFA rankings. It seems possible to achieve a pot two seeding. That is for the World Cup draw. Should the U.S. men's national team qualify for Qatar in 2022? Uh, in 2018, Croatia was pot two at an 18 FIFA rank, and Denmark fell to pot three at 19. Does it? Are you following so far? Yeah, uh, I'm following. So I would assume this is still Thomas speaking. I would assume this hypothetical 2022 u.s men's national team squad would see a much better knockout round prognosis if they qualify in pot two versus pot three is there anything we should do differently in terms of gold cup squad friendly selection etc in order to improve our fifa ranking with this in mind or is a strategy strategy simply just win the games that are put in front of you and qualify he said p.s this is bringing back bad memories of reading paul carr tweets with the possibility of getting into pot two for 2018 following the Panama win in Orlando. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that's the period of time in which I was really into gaming the FIFA rankings as well. Um, and hmm. look how that worked out for us, but it's a great question. Uh, thankfully having a good FIFA ranking is like always better. And you accomplish that by winning games, which is the goal anyways. 
Uh, I don't really think it's something to worry about. Um, uh, I don't worry about it, at least. The only thing that can really be done to boost your ranking is to just play more games and win those games. Um, and the international schedule, as it stands for the next like year, is basically as packed as it can be anyways. So there's not really room to even do that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I guess the only thing I would say is it may have some bearing. It could have some bearing on how we approach the Gold Cup. My my approach, my preferred approach to the Gold Cup would be very experimental. You know, bring in a lot of guys who are on the fringes of the national team, but have a have an upside. Players like yeah. Paxton Pomacall, George Bello, and and just get get them a lot of minutes and assess them and see if they can help us in qualifying. But you know, if if we're a few points off of the of pot two. And, you know, maybe we, maybe we bring a more experienced roster to the gold cup and, and try to just try to get there that way. Try to get into yeah, pot two that way. I don't know. I don't know. It's totally fair. All right. Miscellaneous, miscellaneous category. We got one, two, three, four more questions. Um, question from Randolph. What do we know about what's going on with Alex Mendez? What have been the issues that have kept him from getting any real traction with young Ajax? Matt? Um, yeah, he, he's just not very good at soccer. Oh, is... come on. Come on. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the real problem with him at Ajax, and, and Mendez is still a player that, that I believe in, perhaps against my better judgment, but um, like that situation is just not going to work out for him as long as Ten Hag is the, is the coach of Ajax because... The way that Ten Hag plays soccer is basically like like Alex Mendez could not be a worse fit for it. You know, he has his midfielders flying all over the place, um, high pressing, um, yeah, quick transaction, quick transition, and stuff like that. And Mendez is really a player that you need to kind of, it, kind of like in like a Columbus Crew's around way. Like you have to say like, all right, for most of this game, we're okay with playing with ten and a half men on the field, and when we get the ball, it's going to become like we have twelve, right? Like he's that he's that sort of talent when the ball's at his feet. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I just don't think Ix is going to work out for him. It doesn't appear to. It doesn't appear that it will. Uh, I th- I just think the physical and defensive side of the game is his biggest challenge, and. I don't know how much he can change about his his body in that regard, but if he can get stronger, more di- you know, just more difficult to play against. Uh, look out because he is very special when he gets on the ball. But we'll have to, you know, we'll just have to keep keep our fingers crossed for him. I don't know. I don't know what the next step is. Question from Jared Showalter, uh, fellow Iowan. Are we satisfied with the USSF effort to recruit Efra Alvarez despite his apparent decision to play for Mexico? Has there been sufficient change since the Jonathan Gonzalez saga? Who is next up in the dual national panic cycle? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the answers to those questions are yes, yes, and either Flora and Balagun or Justin Che, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, losing Justin Che would hurt more than losing Fuller Balligan for me at least since he is uh you know essentially a homegrown not in the not capital H homegrown but a real homegrown talent is he a, is he a capital H homegrown for Dallas um yeah he is okay he's a homegrown in every sense uh and yeah I'm satisfied with what we did on Ephra 
with what Berhalter did. I think he gave it a good shot, and I'm ready to stop, you know, worrying about it. However that however that can be resolved. Question from Ben Williams. When I say however that can be resolved, I'm just like sort of resigned to him playing for Mexico. It's fine. Let's just move on. That's my <laughs> that's my thought on it. Question from Ben Williams. I don't really see Reyna as a winger. That's not a question, Ben. Uh, if Reynolds keeps developing, could you see Dest, uh, because of his defensive mistakes, moved up to winger and Reyna moved centrally, perhaps to striker? Thanks. Matt? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how these conversations sort of wrap around scuffed fans from way back in the day, that, that time period being like two years ago. It feels well, so well, long ago, doesn't it? <laughs> right. But they'll remember Bells and Joey Anthone and I talking about potentially moving Reyna to the number nine in a U17 player pool episode um, a few years ago. Um, but anyways, I, I actually think the weakest element of Dest's game is his final ball and uh Dest has looked most effective in the final third over the years when he could cut onto his right foot from the left-hand side, and we aren't going to bench Pulisic to make that happen. Nope. Uh, so Dest is a fullback through and through, in my opinion. If, if you want to, to move Reina centrally, which I don't think is a huge need at this point, uh, you find another winger that can fill that role and leave Dest be in his right-back position or left-back. Okay. Yeah, I, I I pretty much agree with all that. Reyna at right wing is for me clearly the best option right now, and and I think there are f- a lot of it comes back to Yunus Musa. I think for people, I think enough people see that he has struggled at Valencia, and say, well, he, you know, I I I'm willing to drop him from the eleven to put Reyna in the middle, and um, I just don't see it that way. When I see Musa with the national team, I see it like a locked starter. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent there with you. And I like don't really care if he plays for Valencia or not because he's been so good for the for the U.S. Um, so, and I also agree that Dest is one hundred percent a fullback. I love the way the way that helps us build out, um, and the you know just the wrinkle it throws at the opponent to have a fullback who can attack the way he can. I, I do not want to give that up. And then you're talking about you know taking some somebody off the field who is who's a lot better than Reggie Cannon to move Dest forward. So I don't think, I don't think it makes sense, Ben, but good question. Um, question from Shurin Sen, pick a player not named Caden Clark who could make a world cup roster in 2022, but wasn't included on the provisional nations league roster. Hmm. Um, I, I think the smart money would probably be on like a Jordan Morris comeback or, or, or a Paxton Pomico comeback uh, from his injuries. Um, both of them, when they are completely healthy, look like they have to be in the national team picture. Uh, then you have players like Tessman, Cowell, Araujo uh, coming up. Uh, mm. Moses Nydman played a really good game last night. Um, Justin Che and Balogun, as mentioned earlier, might be in the national team picture by them. I'll, I'll take Justin Che. Why not? Let's make the let's make the German American Predatory World Cup cap tie an American tradition. Nice, like uh, like John Brooks and Julian Green. Um, yeah, I I think I'd love to say Richie Ledesma, but I think I'll go with Pax and Pomacall. But I kind of want to say Richie Ledesma still. I understand. I get it, but it's hard to give up on uh, those players, and he and he hasn't necessarily done anything to warrant us giving up on him. You know, no, he just got suck. hurt. Yeah, 
I saw he's back in um back in uh, Eindhoven. So that's good. You saw it yeah. on Instagram. How long ago how long ago was that injury now? Are we approaching comeback season? Mm-mm. I don't think don't so. Remember. I think it's I think it's like September would be the earliest he'd be back. Mm, gotcha. And I don't I think it might not be that soon. But I I don't have any special info. Richie's leaving me on read. He's got a lot, <laughs> he's got a lot to think about. Uh, I think that's it. Any any uh, any closing thoughts? Nope, I'm good, Bells. I got to get back to work. So. All right, thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see ya. Mm-hmm.